This week on the Backtable Podcast. There's a lot that we don't know. And the old debate is, should we put in a shunt, the neurosurgical way of putting in a shunt or putting in a stent? And we still don't know the answer, but I'm super stoked about a study coming out of the barrel. They're supposed to have data coming in early 2024. And so that may give us some answers on who may need a shunt versus who needs a stent. I feel like the venous system in the brain is is almost a blue ocean. We can do a lot of cool things within the venous system. And I think this is just one piece of it. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. First, a brief word from our sponsors. Flow diversion is a rapidly growing treatment method for treating intracranial aneurysms. Surface-modified devices have recently become available, which show great promise in advancing patient care in terms of safety and efficacy. While long-term clinical data is still being gathered, the FredX Flow Diverter with X technology has been shown to reduce material thrombogenicity while maintaining endothelial cell growth, as seen in the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery article from September 2022. For more information, visit fredx.com or contact your local microvention sales representative. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your floral guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'm joined today by Dr. Aaron Bress, a neurointerventionalist in Salt Lake City. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Excited to dive into this. So, uh, you off today? Kind of. I'm covering for a hospital, but it's all good. Not stroke yeah, call, I'm... so we're okay. <laughs> That's right. Me either. I'm, I'm on backup today, so hopefully nothing. So, you're neuro-IR, right? That's right. Neuro-IR. That's correct. And are you doing mostly neuro-IR in your practice or do you do body interventional stuff too? Well, as far as interventional goes, it's neuro-IR, head, neck, spine. It's not just brain aneurysms and strokes. I expand out there, but um, as far as intervention-wise, yeah, it's all neuro stuff. Okay. What's your practice like? And, you know, in academics, private practice? Yeah. So we're, I'd say the biggest private practice in the state. It's in a traditional radiology practice. You know, I do some reading, I'd say probably 30% of the time I'm sitting behind the computer holding the dictaphone. Yeah. <laughs> As radiologists, we're well accustomed to that. That's right. I'm in private practice too. It's, it's part of the job. It's part of the job. Yeah. And then probably about two thirds of the time I'm doing procedures. So it's pretty good. Yeah. Not bad. Well, I wanted to have you on today. You know, I asked Aaron, Aaron Fritz to find me somebody to talk with about transverse sinus stenting, something I've been doing for about a year. This is something you're doing in your practice, I presume. Yeah, we are, for sure. For sure. Is this something that you did in training, or is it something you picked up later? Both. I'd say over the past couple of years, this transverse sinus stenting has become more and more popular. 
I think we're finding that these patients have been overlooked and the benefit is there. So it's becoming more of a popular procedure. Yeah. Let's talk about the patients first. You know, what are we doing these for? What's the indication for transverse sinus stenting? Yeah, usually a lot of these patients, you know, they've been out in the headache, shopping around with multiple doctors, seeing their family practice, multiple neurologists, it's migraines, been on multiple medications. I'm sure you've been doing this a year, you've seen it too. Vast majority are female. They tend to be on the overweight side and they come in, most common is headaches. And then by the time they come to us, they're starting to have vision problems, some pulsatile tinnitus. So things are just not headache anymore. And usually the most worrisome thing, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is that when they start having vision changes, we've decided, I think, in the community, like once there's vision changes, papilledema, that's significant. Stenting is definitely usually warranted. Yeah, that, that's kind of my rule. You know, when we get the referral and they already have vision changes, those are the ones that tend to kind of bump up and, and get in a little faster if I can, because that's where we start seeing trouble. So, you know, who do most of your patients come from? Mine are mainly coming from a neurosurgeon uh, and, and there's a skull-based surgeon that sends a lot as well. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I get some from, we have a headache clinic, which is run by neurologists. A few come from there. Sometimes neuro-ophthalmologists get a few. Sometimes, like you said, ENT. Um, we do have a neurosurgeon in kind of our rotation, so he treats too. He kind of gets his little pipeline as well. I'd say those are probably the three main sources. So I don't know about you. You know, when they, they've made it to my clinic, mine have predominantly all had the majority of the workup already completed. They've gotten, you know, a lumbar puncture with elevated pressures. Most of them have actually already had a MR venogram and, you know, they'll come to me with a referral. It'll say benign intracranial hypertension or, you know, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. They've already had a pretty complete workup. What about yours? I'd say it's 50-50. It's heterogeneous. We can say that. That's a good radiology term. You know, sometimes they're suspecting it. Sometimes it's just papilledema. We go through the whole imaging thing, get the LP. We have plenty of clinical bandwidth to do all that. And then sometimes they're like on a silver platter, like you said, the symptoms are there, the vision changes, the stenosis on the MRV, they're just ready to go. So it's everything in between. Yeah. And sometimes I'll get the ones that are kind of, you know, I'm on the fence about the pressure may not be too high on the LP, but a lot of times I didn't do the LP myself. And so I'm, I'm judging this based on, you know, whoever did the LP, what they measured, the opening pressure, and then the MRV as well, you know, it depends on who reads it really. I mean, if, you know, I've got one place that is used to reading these for me and, and they know what to look for. So how do you go from that, you know, your referral to deciding when and, and if you're going to get the patient on the table for a venogram? Well, the clear cut one is they have the imaging findings like on MRI, like the empty cella, expanded cella, the CSF around the optic nerve roots, you know, the flattening of the globes. The normal brain, there's no hydrocephalus or a reason to explain it. And then the MRV shows the stenosis and they have the clear visual symptoms. You know, those are kind of the knee jerk, you know, we're going to go and do this. It starts getting gray, anything else. So a lot of patients struggle with the pulsatile tinnitus. You know, they really hate that and it keeps them awake at night. It's awful. They failed medical therapy or they hate it. I'm sure you have a handful of patients that are on Diamox or whatever medication, or they've tried weight loss. Like, let's be honest, I, 
I don't know if you've done an, a diet or not. It's it's hard to be on that for the long term, you know? Yeah. So um, those kind of patients that are struggling pulse tall tennis, headaches that they can't stand, plus minus visual changes, like say they don't have maybe mild papilledema or n- no visual changes, but symptomatically and imaging wise, they look, I'll put them on the table as well. Do you try to have all of them see neuro-ophthalmology if they haven't already, or just an ophthalmologist in general? I do. I do. It's definitely in my pipeline. So after I stent, usually three months later, I, I go for them to have a check and make sure papilledema is heading in the right direction, or at least not getting worse. And for the patients who come to you without imaging, is MRI and MRV what you go for, or do you do CT venogram? But what's your preferred imaging prior to this? Yeah, my preferred imaging is by far MRV you got to get the contrast. Trust me. Yeah. Without contrast, (laughs) it's kind of a waste of time. I mean, it's fine to do both like with and without, like, you know, it's not going to add that much time. The patient's not in the scanner that much more. Um, you can argue comparing this and that, but the contrast is very important. Okay. And so say you've got fairly classic picture, uh, with imaging showing at least one side transverse sinus stenosis and you know, you've decided you're gonna at least do a diagnostic venogram. What are your next steps from there? I'm, I'm kind of curious how you do this in terms of, of timing this, and let's assume they've got insurance that would allow you to stent when you want. Do you plan to do it all at once, or do you do a diagnostic study first and then bring the patient back? Yeah, so I guess we're talking about the patient that's an outpatient kind of controlled. They come in two flavors, more commonly the outpatient, but occasionally you'll get an acute uh, visual change where you kind of have to go more quick, but we'll focus on the outpatient. So for outpatient, I do the diagnostic first. I don't know if this is unusual, but we do all ours from the neck. We do IJ access when we treat, and then when we do the diagnostic, we do all groin. And so then we get our pressures and get a nice venogram, make sure, see our gradients and things like that. So how do you time it relative, you know, let's say you decided you're going to use stent. Do your diagnostic first and then the treatment. When do you start or do you start Plavix ahead of time? I do. We do five days. I know some institutions ranges five to 10 days aspirin Plavix um, and then bring them in for stenting. I used to start them on the Plavix like a week ahead of time before even the diagnostic study. And then if the diagnostic was negative, I'd take them off and that was it. That's how the person I learned from did it. And then I, finally, it took one groin hematoma to change how I do it. So- I will do that if the patient is having visual symptoms and I want to speed it up. But, you know, for patients who either just have asymptomatic papilledema or headache, what I'm doing now is uh, no medicine. I do a diagnostic study. I'm actually doing a a cerebral arteriogram as well, just to exclude dural AV fistula. And I do that and the diagnostic study on the same day. And then if I decide I'm going to treat, then I start the Plavix after and then schedule them like a week later. Yeah. Yeah. You know, groin hematomas are, are annoying and painful. And if a patient gets one, they're not happy. And then they have to come back for treatment or follow-ups. It's best to try to minimize that risk. And that's another point I didn't talk about is that you touched on is getting it just a diagnostic angiogram, especially with a pulsatile tinnitus case, you know, just to be a hundred percent sure there's no fistula or something. Let's talk about how you do your diagnostic study correct me if I'm wrong, you said you do the neck access for the, the stent or for the diagnostic? For the treatment. Okay. I will get into that a little bit. I want to I wanna hear why in a little while, but starting with the diagnostic, what all are you looking for? Yeah. So we'll start from scratch. So 
I start with a diagnostic angiogram, like you said, because I'd say 90 plus percent have pulsatile tinnitus. And so I just do a basic diagnostic. Usually it doesn't take that long. And I do that from the groin. Since I'm already at the groin site, I go in with a diagnostic catheter and then take like a 27 microcatheter to get my pressures. Where are you measuring pressures? I start in the superior sagittal sinus and then kind of work my way back all the way to the IJ. So how do you approach it then when you have an MR venogram where it shows bilateral transverse sinus stenosis? Do you just image the dominant side? Do you measure pressures in both? How do you approach that? I measure on both sides. Vast majority of the time, you go up the dominant side and then you can get across. It's usually not a problem. And you're there. It takes an extra two to five minutes. Yeah. And so what do you consider a significant gradient or at least one significant enough to eventually stent? That's a good question. And yeah, <laughs> when you read the literature, like you see some papers, people are like, well, it's got to be at least four. And then some, some institutions, eight. We've settled on 10 most of the time. I'm doing the same. And then, of course, as soon as I say that, my next one is going to be a nine. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and those are the ones that I struggle with because... You know, you'll have a patient that comes to you and it's like the most classic picture of benign intracranial hypertension you've ever seen. They have papilledema and then they're great in. It's like seven or eight. And I'm like, well, what the hell do I do with that? I'd say stent it. If it fits, do it. We're seeing about an 80 to 85 percent success rate, depending on the institution. We don't have great randomized control trial data, but it works probably about 80 percent of the time. Yeah, I'm with you. And. It's always nice when you do that, you know, you stint that patient and then the gradient disappears. And it's like, okay, I didn't make this up. My, Well, then, you know, what do you do when you do your diagnostic and, you know, you see significant gradients on both sides? In what sense do you mean? Well, when it's time to treat, and we'll get into how you treat him, but do you select one side to treat or do you ever do both at the same time? I do one side. You know, I'm not sure if that's the right or wrong answer, but I go for the dominant side or the side that has the biggest gradient. Yeah. It's the right answer because that's what we're doing, and uh, there's no one here to tell us that we're that's wrong. Right. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, let's talk about how you treat them. So you said you start Plavix and aspirin five days ahead. What dose of each do you do? I just do the classic. I do a baby aspirin and a 75 Plavix. And then at the day of the procedure, so usually they have a date, so we know when to start five days in advance. So they're not on Plavix for like three or four months or two months if I'm backlogged. And then, you know, we get uh, P2Y12 and go from there at the day. So on the day of, are you doing this with sedation, anesthesia? I've actually heard some different opinions on this. I mean, I, I know some people that are doing this with general, uh, some people doing sedation. I'm doing sedation. That's fine. I mean, yeah, I'd go through the neck. So I do a GA. That makes sense. I guess I could try it awake once and see how it goes, but... You know the population, and it's stressful, and you're poking around someone's neck. And it's also, it can be a little painful when you go around the junction. They feel it. They feel it. And so I feel like it's nice. It makes the procedure go easy. And so that's what I do, especially since when I'm treating, I go through the neck. So why the neck? So it gives me a lot more push, number one. And number two, I avoid the heart. As someone who's done this, I know you know that getting around the transverse sinus junction can be a challenge. And if you're pushing from the groin, you get a lot less push. I guess you could go through the arm too, but, and then, you know, when you're pushing, 
do this one time. Just fluoro down and watch your guide catheter bowing in the heart. Oh, I have. And you've um, seen it? Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I went down and looked because I wonder where the hell the rest of my catheter was. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's why I do it. And I don't have any trouble, man. It, it works really nice. So what are you using? What are you going up with? I get access with just a traditional Terumo 8 French sheath. A lot of people get nervous about 8 French in this field, you know, the neurologists, neurosurgeons particularly. But like you as a body guy, you're putting like 12 French, at least for dialysis catheters. Like, it just doesn't worry me, that that piece. No. And then usually I kind of do like a little, I guess it's a triaxial, biaxial system where I take like an axis infinity guide sheath. Because usually the, the stent is made for like a 90 centimeter, 100 centimeter guide sheath, right? So then I go through with that and then inside the actual guide sheath, I have a like a vert catheter to kind of get around. And once I get around, you know, then I deploy the stent through like the axis infinity guide sheath and it goes relatively smooth. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll get through, you know, I'll do my diagnostic venogram and I like to put like a roadmap up there so I can see exactly where to land my stent. Do you measure pressures again on the day of the, the procedure? I think you're asking like, do I measure it before I put the stent? I don't. Like once I've, they've gone through all this stuff, we know clinically like the stent's going in, you know, that the day of the stent, the stent's in. But I do measure after I put the stent because sometimes you can get some in-stent stenosis and you balloon it and it helps the gradient. Okay. So for me, you know, I learned early on that the most important thing for me is you got to get the guide catheter past the stenosis all the way. You can't really push the stent over the wire through there. But uh, what size stent are you using? Is it the same every time or does it vary from one patient to the next? Yeah, it's patient specific. So none of this has like hard data. So like every shop is going to be a little different. But my general thing is I size it to the size of the sinus. You know, I'm not going to over stent or oversize. And then the stenosis, I want to have at least a centimeter of, of metal on each side. Some people are being crazy, like they're standing all the way to the superior sagittal sinus to prevent animal hyperplasia. Maybe that's the right answer. But for the garden variety case, vast majority, I try to get at least a centimeter of coverage on each side and I try to size it to the size of the, the sinus. What type stint are you using? I use precise stint predominantly. Yeah, me too. That's good, man. Yeah, we're doing it right. <laughs> That's right. All right, so uh, do you balloon them after? I usually don't have to. With a precise stint, it has enough radial force that it's rare. I usually don't have to. Occasionally, I'd say 10% or less. And then you measure your pressures. What do you do if you've put the stint in and it looks pretty good and you're gradient is still there usually it's not if if it is there so uh, everybody's had a case right so we had a case he's a new nir guy and he was convinced the stenosis was not in the traditional spot so it looked like there's two spots of stenosis and i was like i think it's kind of the traditional spot but let's stent it looks angiographically like you're right so we did it and the gradient was still there and so then we stented the stenosis yeah, the real one. The real one. And um, it went away. So I've never had a scenario like that, per se, because when I do the gradient, like I know where the, the gradient changes. So I've never really had it to where it hasn't gone down significantly. 
That being said, I've had really significant gradients upwards into the range of 30s. Wow. Where it doesn't go to zero, like it'll go to like 12. But, you know, that rate of change from 30 to 12 is, is a big change. So I'm usually happy with that. Yeah. The only one I've had where it didn't fix a gradient was kind of what you talked about. It didn't look like it was, it wasn't in the in the normal spot, but uh, it turns out I'd, I, I didn't have a full centimeter of coverage. And so I had to, I had to reline it. Don't get fancy with this, man. That's no, a, I think that's the rule of thumb. Like that's a great piece of advice for these. Don't get fancy. Just, you know, where it's going to be, right? Know where it's going to be. Do the stent, especially a precise stent, plenty of radial force. If you need a little balloon afterwards, you're going to be good 95% of the time. Yeah. I'm curious if there are any pitfalls or challenges that you run into frequently. Interestingly, you know, some of the ones I had thought about are, are ones that probably be obviated by coming from the neck. You know, sometimes I'll run out of length with my guide catheter. One thing I've seen that has been a challenge getting the stent up has been where there's kind of like a dip in the, the jugular right before it gets to the skull base. Uh, and sometimes it can be a challenge to get the stent over that, it'll buckle everything out and then have to take everything out, get back up, get back into the superior sagittal sinus and start over. No, I, I feel you. Try from the neck. Try this technique. When you get the guide catheter, like an Axis Infinity or BMX, whatever, I like Axis Infinity. It's not as big as a BMX, but probably either one would work. Once you get that guide catheter around that the transverse sinus junction, you can put the stent in. It goes like butter, just right in. And then you can unsheath that back, you know what I mean? And and then just kind of pull the, the stent to where you want to deploy it and do it. So like those kind of issues, I don't have that problem because when I'm treating, I'm going through the neck. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I usually use a track star, but you know, it's similar to a BMX, I think. And yeah, I do it the same way, get past it and then just unsheath it. But I think, you know, a lot of these challenges would be a bit easier from the neck. One thing I had meant to ask you, do you load with Plavix or do you give any heparin or anything at the beginning of the case when you're stenting? Well, they've already come in on Plavix. The only time we would load is like in the acute fate, like scenario where they've had acute vision changes and admit it to like the ED or whatever. But, you know, they're already therapeutic on Plavix or the kind of dual antiplatelet has been dealt with prior to starting the procedure. I think it's just kind of the culture of our place. We start with 6,000 units of heparin, but we try to keep it between like 250, 350 ACT. Okay. Let's talk about what happens after you deploy the stent. You measure the pressures. Do you do anything else or, you know, you just pull everything out, hold pressure and call it a day? The day of the procedure, we do a quick venogram, make sure everything's flowing, no extra, nothing weird, untoward is going on. The pressures are measured and the gradient looks good. Yeah, just pull out and hold pressure at the neck. So do they stay the night or do you send them home? We stay the night. So they don't need to go to the ICU, I don't think. I agree. We used to do that. The problem with our hospital is getting them on the floor. So it's like local politics. You know, to put a patient with a stent that the nurses aren't used to with a, a neck stick you know, they don't really want them on the floor. So we do put them up in the ICU basically because we're kind of forced to. Yeah, I get it. We used to do the ICU mainly just because at the time that's what everybody was doing. I have for the last six months or so been sending most patients home. The challenge for me has been getting them to that point, you know, with pain control. I mean, I, 
God know where I tell patients now, like you're going to get a headache. A hundred percent of you are going to get a headache after. Are you given anything that works really well after the procedure? I've gotten to where I now give pretty much everybody some IV Decadron at the end of the case. Yeah, but I'm not saying that you do it, but definitely if you oversize the stent, the stretch of the dura can definitely cause headache. Yeah, I guess since we admit them to the hospital, you know, we don't have to deal with the phone calls or the IR recovery constantly calling, but we just do general pain management, kind of start with Tylenol, that doesn't work, it usually never works, and then you kind of ramp it up to the opioid level. And usually the next day they can live with it. Yeah. I've been telling patients like a couple days, but usually they don't require much after like the first day in terms of pain medicine. What are you doing for the patients that are on Dimox or other medications uh, after the procedure? That's a great question. What I do is I half the dose immediately so that they go home on half for a week and then I get rid of it and see how they're doing. Everybody has their little cookbook. Some people expand it over a month or two weeks. I don't know that there's the right answer, but Dimox, most patients hate it. Yeah, they say they tell me it's disgusting. They hate it. Yeah. So they're they're more than happy to half their dose to get off it and be done with it. Yeah. How long do you continue the Plavix and aspirin? I do six months. Okay. I've been doing three and then keeping them on aspirin forever, but I think I like six months more. Like my last couple of patients, I was like, I'm not ready to take you off of this yet. Six months sounds a bit more reasonable. What other follow-up do you do? Like, do you see him back in clinic? Do you get any imaging? Yeah. So at the six months mark, they're off the Plavix and it's okay. So I, I actually do an LP to make sure the pressures are okay. If the pressures are elevated, I'll bring them back to angio and measure the gradient. If they're normal, I guess it's just more to be a hundred percent. I get a, I actually get a CTV. I think it, it shows it really well. You don't get that subtraction that you do on the MRV. And if everything looks good, I'll follow up in a year with them. For the patients that you're bringing back for a diagnostic mediogram, what are you really looking for there? What are you expecting to see? The patients who have elevated pressures, let's say it's six months or, you know, say they get an abnormal CTV, uh, basically anybody who's going to end up back on your table after having a stent placed. So the most common thing is instant, like intimal hyperplasia or the most common place that it generally happens is usually at the ends of the stent. I'm not sure why exactly. I'm sure there's someone who who knows the reason, but that's usually where it happens. Well, what are you doing for those? So those, if the patient's symptomatic, you kind of go back into that loop. Like if they're like a little symptomatic, they can kind of live with it. You know, I just keep on aspirin plavix longer and then follow up in like six months, LP imaging and stuff like that. If the vision things are coming back and everything's coming back, you know, I'll put a stent across that and then go back to the six month follow-up. So Aaron, I'm curious how you do this. This has been one of the big challenges for me doing the procedure and that's setting realistic expectations for these patients, particularly the ones that have headache and the pulsatile tinnitus uh, compared to somebody with papilledema, because I think those are the, the ones where I've had the best clinical success, but I, I found the ones with headache and, and similar symptoms to be more of a challenge. And I'm I'm curious how you manage that. There's certainly a challenge. And, you know, you feel as a proceduralist, the data is not like rock solid to do it. Anything other than the vision changes. You know, I don't think there'll be many doctors saying you, you did malpractice at that point. But the pulsatile tinnitus and then the headaches, pulsatile tinnitus is like the middle level. And then you get to headaches because headaches is so obscure. If you look 
at a lot of the data that I've seen come out from Jefferson or Barrows, if you put in the stent, a rule of thumb is about 80%. It improves the symptoms if they meet all the other criteria. You know what I mean? I think the pulsatile tinnitus, it may even do a better job. I've noticed that's usually the first thing. They're like, oh, the, the ringing or the pulsing in my ear. Yes, it's gone, right? So you just kind of have to let them know, like one in five people that we put a stent in, it, it's not going to improve your symptoms. You have that conversation in clinic and discuss that with them. Aaron, that's about all that I've got. What else that I didn't cover do you think it's important to talk about for this? Well, I think there's a lot that we don't know. And the old debate is, should we put in a shunt, the neurosurgical way of putting in a shunt or putting in a stent? And we still don't know the answer, but I'm super stoked about a study coming out of the barrel. I think it's called Open Up. They're supposed to have data coming in early 2024. And so that may give us some answers on who may need a shunt versus who needs a stent. I feel like the venous system in the brain is is almost a blue ocean. We can do a lot of cool things within the venous system. And I think this is just one piece of it. Well, Aaron, thank you for sharing your Sunday and your expertise with us. I I really appreciate it. I learned a lot and uh, look forward to having you back on here. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much, man. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter. Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 